Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 291. Today is Sunday the 26th of August 2018 and this interview is with Simon Lafosse, who's the founder and chairman at his eponymous firm Lafosse Associates, which is an award-winning recruitment agency founded in 2007 and specialized in technology recruitment. While based in the UK, they also have a presence in LA and New York. It's a co-owned business that deals with one of the hottest topics, how to win the battle for tech talent. In this conversation with Simon, we look at the lay of the land for recruiting techies. What do companies need to be thinking about and doing to make sure that they hire and retain the best? We look at how companies should be addressing tech, as well as what advice he'd share for those just starting out in the job world. A great chat about an important topic. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Simon Lafosse, Lafosse, great to have you on the show. Um, I've appreciated uh, getting to know you and, and understanding what makes you tick and, and your business so successful. So in your own words, Simon, tell us who you are and uh, what you do. So, uh, yep, Simon Lafosse, and I started a, a company unimaginatively called Lafosse Associates 11 years ago. And, and since that time, we've, we've grown from, from just me to about 170 people, uh, turnover approaching 100 million. And uh, I, th- I think the things that have driven our success are... Uh, Firstly, most importantly, a co-ownership structure. So right from the start, I said I wanted 40% of the company to be gifted to the people that helped me build it. And I think that has, 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 has driven our growth substantially. And, uh, and the second thing is, is, again, very simply, this understanding that recruitment has always had a poor reputation for the way it looks after people, whether they're candidates or whether they're their own employees. And I wanted to turn that on its head. And for me, that's not just a good way to behave. It's a really sound business philosophy. And I think that's the second thing that has driven our, our, our continued growth. So when you began this company 11 years ago, Simon, did you have an, an idea that this was where you were going? I mean, did you have this sort of a blueprint and I want it to be 150 people, $100 million pounds? Or does that, is that just the consequence of smart sense and good people? A little bit of both. I had, I had, uh, not. I wouldn't call it a blueprint. I certainly had a vision, and it was that sized company, but a lot faster. So we're a little bit behind schedule, but probably a slightly more realistic schedule. In, in, in just so I understand, because we're going to be talking a lot about recruitment. But is size? To what extent is size a relevant competitive item in in the recruitment business? I think I think it's helpful from a number of perspectives. Certainly, brand uh, g- it gives you an advantage. I think it also gives you a more consistent way of being able to do things. And lastly, and importantly, it gives you an opportunity to properly specialize in certain areas. And it's that degree of specialization, the specialist knowledge, and knowledge of the marketplace, knowledge of the candidates, that certainly allows you to add additional value than if you were a generalist. So Lafosse is noted for its specialization in tech. Uh, first of all, how do you define tech at this point? Uh, and, and is that really the, the singular definition, or, or do you have other spokes to the wheel? 
we, we describe ourselves as, 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 as technology and change specialists, and, and to a certain extent all technology is about driving change. So that's a, that's a bit of a catch-all, but it, it means that it extends simply outside of the pure technical realm to the way that society is changing or business is changing, and often that's driven driven by tech. And to the first part of your question, you, you're, you're right, tech is, is, is a very broad description. And uh, 20 years ago, it used to be quite simple. It was the IT department. And now if, uh, if an organization uh, doesn't have tech at, at a fairly uh, homogenous level, it, it's probably not an organization, organization for the future and, and debatably uh, not an organization for the present either. So maybe by looking uh, over the last 11 years, how would you say that recruitment of tech profiles has changed? Or are there, has there been a tipping point or a moment of you know, a special change? Or any event, how can you describe the, the lay of the land in recruiting tech people today? It's certainly rad- radically different. I think it's still a relatively new industry. So... I've, I've been in it for longer than I care to remember. And when I first started working in it, it was all about mainframes. And, and it was about... Uh, well, no, before that, yes. Uh, yeah, IBM, MVS, and great big, great big lumps of, uh, 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 of, of steel. And, and so we saw it... We saw it for, I've seen it certainly move from, from mainframes, and still then it was a, it was a new industry to a, a position where client-server computing came in and behind that was this sense that we can outsource a lot of what we were, we were doing and at the same time we believed in outsourcing uh, uh, just outside of the firm's core competency we were also outsourcing into different geographies so suddenly we saw the, the rise of India and, 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 and China and to a certain extent I think we outsourced the crown jewels there and whilst it suited us at a, at a point in time, uh, it certainly doesn't now. And one of the other big patterns that we saw 10, 15 years ago in conjunction with this outsourcing was this idea that, that we'd like, we'd quite like to stop customizing everything and we'd like some, uh, some standardized systems. And uh, ERP, uh, Enterprise Resource Planning, came in as, the par- as part of that and organizations like SAP grew massively as a consequence of that. And what I think we discovered later, when we decided that we, when we realized we needed much more agile organizations to cope with the digital age, was that actually the functionality uh, that they offered was also the technological concrete that we didn't need if we were going to be an agile organization. And with the increasing pace of change and, and, and the necessity to change th- through uh, a, 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 a more ubiquitous digital world, to a certain extent, we found that those Systems are not fit for purpose anymore. And along with that, we found we have a dearth of technical talent because what did we do? We outsourced it a generation ago. And the consequence of that is uh, a, a vertical demand for a very different type of talent and, in addition, a, a lack of skills coming, coming through our universities and, 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 and our systems. So we, we have something of a tech crisis as a result. There's no doubt that the world of HR recruitment or recruitment in general has gone through its own disruption. And if we put one name to it, that would be LinkedIn. But there are several others, and even Facebook is participating in in recruitment in some level. To what extent do you consider LinkedIn a competitor, a cooperator, a good thing? 
and and how has that been for you to work alongside LinkedIn along the ways? LinkedIn's an interesting one. I think it certainly democratized the process of, of recruitment. Uh, but what it hasn't taken away is that essential element of brokerage that I think a third party has a natural advantage in. And, and I think it has certainly encouraged the recruitment industry to get better at what it does. Uh, but net-net for a company like us, I see it as an advantage. It gives us a very uh, a much more efficient form of research to be able to uh, to find talent for the for the companies that we work for, and and in a in a, a world where that talent is very rare and hard hard to find, and sometimes hard to evaluate, the back end of what we do is is still very important. So net net, net I'm, I'm, I think I'm delighted it's there, which is not to say I'm complacent about it, but it, but so far for us it's been a really effective resource. And when you say effective, does that include the financial model for paying for? what is it called, the professional in um, licenses that you have for so many people in your company? And that's reasonable for me. We would have had to have paid for a number of, um, we still have researchers, we don't need the same amount of researchers. So for me, it's providing a service that provides good value. And um, I personally welcome it. That's cool. When you look at companies that are you're you're consulting and aiding in the onboarding and recruitment of tech people what do you think they need to be thinking about in order to make it successful and if i put some context around that question in the past executives might have been very comfortable recruiting a cfo or a financial person or a marketer and a lot of other profiles that sort of been around taught in business school with regard to the tech community there does seem to be a very different spin to them and so how do you qualify or advise companies your customers on successful recruitment and retention i think the first thing is to understand exactly what it is you're looking for and is that a realistically achievable from the marketplace both in terms of the skill combination you're looking for and the salary that you're offering and the attractiveness that you're able to offer in terms of a, a, a career path. And if they're not compatible, don't go out to the market looking for it. And that, again, I think is the advice you should be able to get from a good recruiter is, is before you go to market, you make sure that what you're looking for is realistic and achievable. Demanding, but realistic and achievable. And I think that's, a, that, that's very important. So assuming we get that right and we recruit somebody, I, I think that the all-too-often uh, belief is that the job's done. And actually, the the truth is the job's just started. The onboarding that person needs to be really carefully thought through, and, and very frequently it's not. And the consequence of that is from day one, there's a bond of trust that's been ever so slightly broken, and, and you've got bridges to build from, from the first moment you've engaged with them. So, so you need to think very carefully about that. And it's not a complicated process. It's just about treating people with respect when they come into your organization in terms of how it feels for them. Yeah, it's, it's another ordinary day for everybody else, but for them it's a really challenging time where everything's new and they don't know anybody. So just un- understand that. Put yourself in their, in their place. Number one, and then I think the second thing is, is do the circumstances that attracted that person to the organization still, uh, still exist in the same way? Is it still attractive for them? Because things will change, either in terms of their own perceptions, their own speed of career, 
the horizon of the company. So are those things still in tune for that individual? And if they're not, what can you reasonably do to, to uh, a, a, adapt the circumstances so that it still becomes a, a sensible place for that person to, one, be engaged, and, and two, to want to continue to develop their career? And, and by sensible, I don't mean... Uh, uh, bending over backwards to try and accommodate an individual, but rather understanding at a personal level what it is that stimulates them and, and how much of that you can offer them in, in terms of their career that also offers mutual value to you. And I think that is a very individual thing and, and takes time and takes care, and that's important. Some of that may be training, some, may, some of it may be about introducing them to a different business area, um, but th- th- those are the things that will not just retain your staff, that, but will m- get the most out of them. And, and often I think we, we focus them on, en- on things that, that uh, don't energize them, but may energize somebody else. So it's not that it has to be done by somebody. It's simply that uh, is the right person doing the right job. And I, and I don't think we think enough about that. So when you're dealing with these customers, you, you mentioned having realistic objectives. Uh, I my mind goes to are they self-aware as a company about their own abilities even are they so aware of what needs to happen and i'm going to take an example that i had recently where i was sitting beside the ceo and one of the young geeks in the company came up to me and said oh, you know this is a terrible place to work we don't even have enough memory on my computers and I said, well, then you just need to ask for an upgrade. Well, we've tried that. The processes take six weeks. And so I said, well, have you asked the CEO who's sitting to my left? And I, I turned to the CEO just kind of blithely because I'm an external. I said, listen, do you know about the problem of RAM? And he said, no. And, and so my point is at some level, there's a lot of things that may be so absolutely vital for a geek in terms of tech specs but are considered sort of like a cost and oh, a bloody pain in the neck, or I don't even know about it from the C-suite. And so that, is, there, is there a lot of work that also in your customization point that you were talking about needs to happen in onboarding and, and, and digging into these little, little problems, really, but, but, are, but are big in the eyes of the people who are coming in? And I think there's two responsibilities there. There's, there's, the, there's the first clearly for good leadership, which is to, you can't understand everything in an organization, but you can create the conditions whereby people can approach you and, and, and talk about things like that. And, you know, there's a good example. Why did that person not approach the CEO? Was the CEO unapproachable or perhaps, uh, and so, so we, we need to sort that piece out uh, and, and, and just have a, a, a management, an entire management in an organization that listens and listens carefully, also understands when to push back, but is open enough to listen and humble enough to listen. And the second thing that's just important, and this comes back to the kind of people you recruit, is are you recruiting people with a growth mindset or, or something of a victim mindset? Mm. And, and, and we all know moaners, and uh, they would much rather have something to moan about than mm. a solution to offer. And, uh, and I, but I think you can recruit for that, and I think culturally you can either encourage or discourage it. And I think that's absolutely critical because if I look at that environment, I, I would say from your, your, the scenario, the person most at blame is the person that hadn't actually taken responsibility for, for, for actioning that and had at some point tried and then given up. And, and for me, it, uh, I, I would rather see that person take responsibility for 
resolving the issue rather than because at the, at the end of the day it doesn't benefit the organization it doesn't benefit that individual yeah, I'm, and i'm the person facilitating it i'm an external i might have resolved that particular problem but we haven't fixed the systemic issues exactly and if the ceo didn't know about that there's nothing the ceo can do about it so there was a there would have been a way for that person to have done it if they mentioned it to their line manager their line manager blocked it there would have been a way for them to get the ceo on their way out to the car park or the way into the car park or even in the pub well, at some point, sometimes, I think it is, how do I know what I don't know? And, and, and I think in the digital world, which is going to be my next question, there's a, a tremendous gap in C-suite that wasn't brought up with this, that are trying to read the Financial Times and trying to get with it. But there's a lot of blind corners. And if they don't know to pose the questions... Is there anything I don't know about? Is there, is there technical issues that I'm not aware of? Because basically, let's, you know, between you and me, so to speak, and the intimate audience, that was a question they might have asked their secretary before. You know, listen, I want to fix my computer. You know, you go do it. Now it's, it is, it's more important than the bottle of water on my desk. It's sort of my life. And, and we're getting more aware. But yet C-suite are still far removed from the world of these techies that are looking for super CPUs and, and different configurations. Yeah, and I think it's a significant issue. And as, uh, as, as a man in his 50s, I, I can relate to a lot of those issues. And uh, I, I think that in the boardroom, there's a lot of reticence to open themselves up to admitting how much they yeah. don't understand because that's not, not their normal position. Right. They're in the boardroom because they understand better and they, know uh, they, they know everything and they can lead. And so it takes a, a real act of humility to, to be able to do that. But it's absolutely critical uh, for their own survival and the organization's survival. Uh, and, and interestingly, we're seeing support networks grow up around this need to educate not just the C-suite, but also the entire organization. There's a company called Freeformers that's been amazingly commercial, commercially successful with that very simple premise, which is helping uh, people to understand not necessarily how to digitize an organization, but h- how to respond more appropriately to changes in, market, in the marketplace. So it's, on one side, it's a technical education, but on the other side, perhaps more importantly, it's, it, it's a behavioral expectation that things will change faster, mm-hmm. that you need mm-hmm. to uh, s- s- stay afloat in this situation. And, and, uh, and if you do, you guess what? You're riding a wave as opposed to drowning. So the, there's a big prize there. Well, surely I'll be putting free formers in the show notes. So we're, you know, let's say we're recruiting for tech profiles in, you know, let's say, a programmer, a coder, a website builder. To what extent have you seen that actually it's also about recruiting an HR manager that's got a high tech IQ? So in other words, as we look at the gaps that are resident in companies today with regard to digital and tech capabilities, it seems that at some level everybody has to up their digital IQ. And, and how do you go about doing that? So you're, you're, do, you get, do you get briefs, hey, listen, I need an HR director? But I want that's a little bit geeky, that's able to work LinkedIn without needing more training. How has that also shifted in the way you recruit and who you have to recruit? I, our recruitment is so much focused on, on uh, either tech people or people very much in the tech world. So 
chief marketing officers from a predominantly digital company, that it's difficult for me to answer that question. But, but, but what I would say is that for sure, any organization that wants to be successful in the future needs people not necessarily that are HR or, 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 or marketing or finance people that are geeky, but certainly all of those people need to have a hunger and an interest in understanding what the issues are how quickly the market is changing from a technology perspective, and most of, importantly of all, what the commercial opportunities of those are. And then it's about, once you can understand that, then you can get the right talent in to help you. But until you understand that, or at least until you're open to the idea of understanding that, then you can't get out of the starting blocks. When you place somebody, Simon, because you guys at LaFosse really pride yourselves in... in succeeding long-term placements, other words, you know, that, that, that survive <laughs> the, the initial crises and stresses. What are the things that in LaFosse's philosophy and activities help to best ensure success of the landing of placements in companies? And, and if maybe put another way, what do companies need to be f- doing to make that landing better? You know, how much do they have to go out of their way to accommodate as opposed to the candidate needs to accommodate for the company? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it comes down to a very analog and traditional view of the world, which is it's about thoroughness. And it's about thoroughness in terms of how we assess people, thoroughness in terms of the, what the client is looking for and is, is, is that viable. And alongside that, uh, because then you'll end up with a high-quality shortlist short of people who are not only relevant but are interested in the opportunity as it exists. And the second piece that needs to sit alongside of that, of that is integrity. So uh, the temptation to oversell a role either f- by the recruiter or the client is is, is uh, it, it's critical not to do that because otherwise you just end up with, with a dissatisfied person in, in the role from, from day one. And, and, you're a just, and a breach of trust. And a breach of trust, and you're just storing up a load of trouble. So that's a critical one, and that doesn't mean don't understand what's attractive about the role, but it means sell it responsibly. It means discuss it in a responsible way. And if it isn't attractive, then you need to fundamentally change the role to make sure it is attractive if you want talent in that, in, in, in that role. But importantly, that's about fundamentally changing the role to mean that it is attractive to the right kind of people as opposed to window dressing it. And, and all too often, I think, the recruitment industry certainly has, has suffered from that. And to be fair clients have uh, not put enough thought into why somebody should not we we should not just be able to get somebody in the door but importantly critically why they should be continued to be why they should continue to be engaged day after day in 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 the pursuit of of the company's goals from my angle simon i hear a lot of companies or uh, griping about the fact that these new generation people they just want to come in flip in, flip out. They want lots of seniority, lots of autonomy. They want great systems, and then they can leave after 18 months and bugger off because they got a better offer somewhere else. It does seem that it is a, uh, a supplier's market. That's to say that there's a lot more, uh, you know, there's a lot less supply than the demand in certain specific areas. And, and uh, we've got a, a, a dearth of talent or good talent and experienced talent as far as the market is asking. This is what I keep on reading about. Can you confirm that and maybe qualify where you see specific areas of, of gaps in terms of the marketplace? I think that's, I think that's true. And, and I think 
certainly anything that is to do with front-end development work, so anything that's website-related, for sure. We, we uh, And almost every area of tech you look at that's mm. exciting, so AI, uh, cyber, security, uh, architecture, all, all of these are massively in, massively in demand and in very short supply, as much as for, for the reason that... Uh, it, it, they're relatively new disciplines mm. uh, as anything else. So is is the advantage with the employee for sure because they know their skills are in rare demand. Having said that, uh, do they want to have to vote with their feet? No, of course not. It looks bad on their CV or their LinkedIn profile these days, and uh, and it's a load of disruption. So and and do they want to come in and do a good job? Of course they do every day. So those two things are very much in your favour. They want to stay with you and they want to do a good job. So despite the um, the fact that they are rare talent and they are in demand, uh, I think it just encourages you to think properly about why you should be making that environment as, as attractive for them to perform as possible. And that's not about bending over backwards to accommodate them. That's simply about understanding how to keep an engaged person engaged, and that surely has got to be good... Uh, management practice and yet i'm going to push back simon because if you think about the way we have in the past recruited uh he's really or she is a great talent got lots of experience great university uh let's put her in marketing and then we'll have a little do a moment in finance and then we're going to take her and do some sales and then when she can become a general manager by the time she's such and such an age and then you know then afterwards she can be on the board so we we track and we trace say a career path according to of this talent that I can understand. It doesn't seem to be the same way, at least as I see it, uh, for a more geeky tech profile. And so how does one then create an environment and an engagement over time for that type of profile? Is there a career path that makes sense that could stick for somebody for 30 years in a company today? I, I, I don't think so, to be honest with you. I think that old paradigm of... of uh, being able to trust a company or, or commit your career to a company has, has long since gone. And I think you have a responsibility more yourself than the company to keep your skills current. The company then has a responsibility to keep you engaged. But I, but I think uh, I, I would suggest that for any individual, they take responsibility for that, which isn't to say they don't involve the company in it. If the company can be the one that pays the training to keep them current as opposed to themselves, and that's a, that's a great position to take and hopefully an enlightened one for the company but if but if they won't then i think you sh- you should do it yourself again it's it's taking responsibility for yourself as opposed to becoming a, a, a victim a civil servant so uh, simon last area is ele- and you know this maybe speaks to the fact that i have a 21 year old and a 19 year old thinking of the future but if you had a, a room full of students at university and they they asked you mr lafos what would you advise I should be doing in terms of improving my skills, knowledge, and or attitude to make for a better long-term, future-proof career, as I like to call it? Uh, broadly speaking, you've got to be involved in some way, shape, or form with, with however you choose to define it, the digital world, the, the, the technology world, because... I, I see very few organizations that aren't either being decimated by n- new entrants in that space 
or, or, or industries that are waiting to be uh, disrupted. And, and you can already see that disruption. For some, it's going to take longer than others. There's some big barriers to entry, for instance, for banks and banking licenses and a lot of critical mass, which means it's more difficult. But there are organizations like Tandem, Starling, Revolut, TransferWise that are the, uh, the, the big banks of the future, in my, in my very humble opinion. And... and uh, so I would say certainly be on the side of those as, as, as opposed to the ones being disrupted. I think very carefully, I, th- I would say think very carefully before you get into more traditional industries that are finding it difficult to adapt. And, and two good examples of that would be uh, the accountancy, pra- big accountancy practices and, uh, and, and, and legal firms, which I think find it by their very nature, partly the, their size and their success, but also partly their partnership structure. They find it very difficult to adapt with the speed that they need to, but they are undoubtedly being disrupted as, as we speak in a very fundamental way by the, the ability of, of tech and, and AI to be, to some extent, uh, more efficient already at the, some of their core practices, whether they be audit for accountancy practices or, or uh, contract checking for, for, for lawyers. And those are two ex- examples of things that are already more efficiently done by machines. But I think we've yet to see the impact of that. So I'd, I'd say think long and hard about going into those areas unless you're, you're, you're looking to be in the area that's disrupting. All right, so I hear get digital, learn more about digitality and, and the digital tools. Look closely at the incumbents or you know maybe look with a squinted eye at incumbents for their the risk that they might disappear because they will be disrupted what about what I should I be studying if I'm a student at university and I have let's say many electors that I can choose what are the types of things would you be suggesting to study you know let's say maths sciences code humanities what are, what are the things that in your mind would be really useful skills, knowledge, and attitude to have as you go into the workforce? I think there's all sorts of skills, and they'll come and go, but you'd expect me to trot out the normal list of, of, of skills, and I think a basis in coding is, is not going to do anybody harm, whether that's a part of your course or whether it's something you do at the weekends or, or whether it's just uh, a course you take in, in addition. So I think some wider appreciation of, of, of that is, is, is a very good idea. In addition to that, I, I think to be able to understand how to problem solve, to take that as a generic skill set, because the one thing that we don't know is is uh, we know that the future is changing faster than at any point in the, in, in the last couple of hundred years. We don't know where it's going. We don't know how it's going to change. And and those that can work that out or can work through that are the, are the ones that I think the world will belong to. And so this sense of, of actually understanding how to problem solve, how to be comfortable with ambiguity, how to accept that change is the only constant, these are, I think, are the, uh, are, are the skill sets, that w- the generic skill sets that will stand our young people in, in good stead. Wonderful. Simon, really appreciated having you on the show. That was kind of fun. Talk about a good topic with a great man. And uh, how would you like people to track you down, Simon, or more more prosaically find out more about La Fosse what are the best ways to, to understand what's going on uh, 
by all means linking with me on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I, I take a very a liberal approach to that. And, uh, and, and, and secondly, uh, please visit lafosse.com. Uh, I'd like to think it offers some, uh, some value over, over and above just that for people looking for jobs. I'll put that in the show notes. Thanks for coming on the show, Simon. Pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Joss Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of
Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change Podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.